All right, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. Um, Father, I thank you that you are not just our Father, our Abba, but you are King, and that you are King over all things, that you are making all things new, including us. You're making nations new and spaces and places new, but you're making hearts new. And I just pray, God, that you would help us to see the fact that you keep your promises, that you are a good God, that you are a good Father, that you will make everything right one day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, so if you're new, uh, my name is Andy, one of the pastors here at Restored. And uh, for most of 2021, we've been in a teaching series called Gospel Depth. And what we've been doing is diving deeper and deeper into the gospel message by working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, which is a letter in the New Testament uh, Paul wrote to the Roman church. And what we found in this series is that it is often, is, is that it often isn't that we need new revelation to change our lives or our world but often it's a deeper application of the revelation we have already received that's required. And so we've been diving deeper into the gospel. And gospel, by the way, just means good news. Uh, in this case, it's, it's the good news about Jesus. Um, and, and this past week, my family and I, we spent the week uh, at a vacation house in Palm Springs that was gifted to us by a friend. And the house had an incredible pool. Uh, so pretty much every day our schedule was the same because our kids love swimming. Uh, it's, it's phenomenal, honestly. And so each day uh, we would eat breakfast, and then our kids would swim from around 8 a.m. to about noon. Uh, and then we'd, we'd come inside for a midday kind of swim break when the desert's at its hottest. Uh, and they'd play games or watch movies. If we got lucky as parents, score a family nap time, which only happened once. And then sometime between 5 and 5.30, uh, we'd begin an evening swim that would last till about 10 p.m. that night, shower time, bedtime, that kind of thing. And, uh, and it went pretty much that way every single day. And since we were in the pool so much, uh, our youngest, Olivia, our daughter, she actually learned how to swim while we were there. Uh, by the end of the week, she was in the six-foot section of the pool, no life jacket, jumping in. And uh, she was so excited about it. Now, the pool was fun for her, even in the shallower parts by the steps where prior to being able to swim, she'd kind of walk around, splash around in. Uh, she could touch the floor. But at the same time, the deeper the pool got, the more fun it was for her to swim in. And that there's a lot of enjoyment the deeper we go. Uh, one of the analogies for the gospel I've heard over the years is that the gospel is shallow enough. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this before. I, I like it. The gospel is shallow enough for a child to wade in, but it's deep enough for an elephant to swim in. In other words, the gospel is both simple enough to be understood enough by any disciple of Jesus, but it's profound enough to provoke lifelong reflection by every disciple of Jesus, regardless of how mature they are. Um, in First Peter, it says that angels long to look into the gospel, that angels are immortal, they've been around forever, and they can't get enough of the gospel. So if you're bored by the gospel, you, you can dig deeper. And so in other words, you can explain the gospel in 30 seconds to someone, and they could understand enough of what they need to know to be reconciled to God. And at the same time, someone who has been reconciled to that God can and should spend the rest of their lives reflecting on applying and living in light of this rich, beautiful, powerful gospel narrative. That if true change is everything. And so this series in Paul's letter to the Romans is the latter, not the former, kind of look at the gospel. And so the way Paul has done this deep dive, the way he's unpacked the gospel message so far in his letter to the Romans is by essentially pointing out what is wrong with humanity and our world and how it's being made right again by God through Jesus. And so he points this out in Romans chapters 1 through 2. He makes the point that everyone you have ever met, Jew or Gentile, black or white, gay or straight, rich or poor, male or female, Democrat or Republican, is estranged from God. 
and that that is our biggest problem. It's the source of all of our other problems, which is why the world is so messed up. And then in Romans chapters 3 through 4, Paul lays out the way that God has made for us to be made right with God by trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we see that if we've been reconciled to God, that everything we should touch should be impacted as we are being transformed as individuals, and it, it should transform the world around us. That as followers of Jesus, we become salt and light. And so as we go into the world, we change the environments we find ourselves in. And in the same way, salt makes things taste different. After we've been reconciled to God, our creator and king, and we take his kingdom wherever we go, it should change the environment around us. And one day Jesus will return to finish his job. But in the meantime, we, we, we can be made right to him and experience his life today. And then in Romans chapters 5 through 8, Paul's like, if you have been reconciled to God, it actually changes a lot of things immediately. There are things God does that, that you don't do. There's a newness all around you. The gospel is even better than you think, and the gifts are everywhere. And one of the gifts we receive is the promise that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus, which is how he ends Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39 says this. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I said this a few weeks ago, this is simple, but it's everything. You can face any circumstance, any situation, if you, if you know this and you believe it deep inside of your bones. Heart of a lion, straight away. Now, that's a tremendous promise that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And when Paul's original audience would have heard this promise, they would have thought to themselves, this almost seems too good to be true. It seems too good to be true today. We live in a performance uh, world, and this is a non-performance message. It's the performance of Jesus message. And, and, and they would wonder, okay, what are the terms and conditions of this salvation, of this love, of this gospel? And many of them would have actually been, been Jewish. And they would have said, man, many of my ancestors were, were Jewish. And they, and they were told similar promises in the Old Testament, the, the Old Covenant by the same God. And so few of them are following him now. Did, what happened with that? Did they lose their salvation? Did God keep his promises that he made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Isaac and Jacob? And so jo, uh, Paul jumps into his next major section of Romans 9 to 11, answering that question. And in doing so, again, he's not writing to us. He's writing to them, but there's a lot we can learn from them. By doing so, he teaches us a lot about Israel, salvation, and redemptive history. Now, again, you may feel like this has nothing to do with me. I'm not Jewish. It's 2021. But actually, this section that we're going to uh, we're gonna finish, we're going to finish it next week. Okay. It's arduous stuff. Um, it's super important to us because even if you aren't Jewish and you live in San Diego, da, 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 the question beneath the question, what about Israel? The question beneath that question is, does God keep his promises? Does he keep his promises? Is he a covenant-keeping God? Is he a God you can count on? Is he a God you can trust? Because the message is salvation by faith, which in Greek is synonymous with, with trust. Is he trustworthy? And you and I need to know the answer to that question because if he isn't trustworthy, if he doesn't keep his promises, then all that good gospel goodness of Romans chapter 8 is meaningless to you and I because we can lose it like that. And so Paul's going to answer this question, okay? So that's why we're going to teach through this text, even though many people skip it when they teach through Romans. They go 9 to 11, real specific audience, we're going to move on. Uh, I wish I could do that, I just can't. 
Uh, it's some of the densest theological teaching in all of the scriptures. And so again, the objection they're raising is, Paul, what about Israel? By the way, it's not the nation state of modern day Israel. Do not think government political entity. Uh, Paul is talking about the ethnic group of Israel, regardless of where they live or what their citizenship is. Yes, many of them are in the nation state of Israel today, uh, but not all of them. Uh, and then he's going to ask, there's some sub-questions related to that question, you know, what about Israel, all right? So if you guys have a Bible, start of Romans chapter 11. We'll be starting in verse 1. Romans 11 verse 1 says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Again, this is the question. Has God rejected his people, Israel? 11.1. Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul's like, has God rejected Israel? And I know why you're asking this because so many of them have rejected the gospel, but, but the answer is no. And here's how I know. Um, I can give you a living example of a Jew who's following Jesus, and it's me. I even got my tribe down. It's a solid 23andMe situation. And not just Israel, tribe of Benjamin. I'm Jewish, I'm following Jesus, so it can't be that God has rejected all of his people because I'm one of those people and I'm caught up in this thing. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know that the scriptures say in the passage about Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to take my life. But what was God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. Now, Elijah, he's quoting the Old Testament there. Uh, Elijah was a, uh, an Old Testament prophet in the book of 1 Kings, and he found himself on a mountaintop complaining to God that nobody was left in all of Israel who trusted God except for him. It's like everyone's dove into like paganism, everyone's rejected God, and they want to kill me. They want to partner with, with, with an evil ruler to kill me. And God responds, he's like, dude, it, it, get over yourself. So it says in Hebrew, get over yourself. There's 7,000 Israelites who have never worshiped Baal, nor are they planning on it. And so oftentimes as we follow Jesus, it can feel like we're the only ones following Jesus. I don't know if you ever felt this way at the office or going back home for Thanksgiving or whatever it is. You go, man, am I the only one who follows Jesus here? And, and it's, it's yes and no, maybe in this space, in place, but, but, but oftentimes God's at way more at work than you realize. You're not the only one. In the same way, Paul says, man, God, now back to the original context, God has preserved a remnant of Jewish people. And he goes, you know, you might look at the Jewish people at any given time in history and say, they've rejected God. As you look through, especially the Old Testament throughout, throughout the scriptures. But if you look closer, you'll see that God's always preserved a remnant who still belong to him. This has always been true. And this is also true post-Jesus coming. Um, uh, throughout uh, church history, uh, you'll find that there have been hundreds of thousands of people who have been followers of Jesus. Uh, today, this community is represented by people like Michael Brown or Nikki Gumbel, the creator of the Alpha Evangelism Program. Uh, honestly, again, there's been a ton. As a matter of fact, if you visit Wikipedia, not right now, but later on today, and look up um, a list of converts to Christianity from Judaism is the Wikipedia uh, article, you'll find over 100 famous people from over the last 2,000 years, mostly thought leaders who have become followers of Jesus. And so there's no reason to assume that Jewish people won't continue to get saved, right? Uh, what I'm hoping for in particular is Drake. Drake is half Jewish. I'd love to see that happen. Connie releases Jesus is King. They've got a big problem. Maybe he apologizes. He repents, gives Drake the gift of going second and says, Jesus is King. And another one of God's people turns back to him, another part of Israel. Now, Drake aside, throughout the years, beginning with the very first apostles, there were many Jewish people 
who saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, and they put their faith in him. Matthew, Peter, John, James, Paul, Mary, Mary Magdalene, Nicodemus, they are all Jewish. Don't forget, Jesus himself was Jewish. So Paul's asking, has God given up on his people because so many have decided not to follow Jesus? He's saying, no, because many do. Uh, Keep reading verse 5. It says, in the same way then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. Paul means what guarantees that there will always be a remnant, a small faithful group of Jewish followers of Jesus is not that there's always just a bunch of good people who believe, but that God is always gracious to fulfill his promises. And he does, again, he he fulfills his promises to Abraham through grace. Verse 7, what then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, Eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. This is all quoted in the Old Testament. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent continually. Now remember, Paul taught in Romans 9, which again, if you read the letter originally, you just would have read this as one, basically one argument. All right, Romans chapter 9, Paul made it really clear that not everyone who was ethnically Jewish were by faith God's people. It was almost like all of God's people were Jewish, but not all the Jewish people were God's people. And so he goes throughout history, Isaac, uh, Isaac not Ishmael, you know, from Abraham, uh, Jacob, not Esau. Uh, N.T. Wright, uh, Wright says it's about grace, not race. We talked about that idea. That's people who have received by faith the promises that were given to them. Uh, Tim Keller commenting on this passage says this. He says, here then seems to be the order. First, Israel sought the righteousness of God, but when confronted with the choice of getting it by works or gift, the majority sought it through works, while the elect accepted it as a gift. So the Israel within Israel, in other words. Then the majority was hardened. I think it is fair to paraphrase Paul in 11.7 like this. Israel sought the righteousness of God earnestly, but wrongly, except for the elect. As a result, the majority were hardened. Keller goes on, therefore, the hardening we have here is a judicial hardening. A punishment for having a proud heart that rejects the message of grace. Again, Paul quotes from the Old Testament because he wants to show that this is how God has always treated ethnic Israel. If they harden themselves, he hardened them back, giving them a spirit of stupor. Eyes so that they could not see and ears so that they could not hear. Hardening is thus a fitting punishment for a proud spirit. Pride and self-centeredness lead to hardness and lovelessness. Rejection of God leads to rejection from God. Though God executed, it is a natural consequence. So in pride, some of ethnic Israel rejected grace, though many received it by faith. All right, close quote. All right, so, so again, it's as if, um, I'll just keep going. It's, it's, the text is kind of repetitive, right? Now again, okay, what's going on with Israel? It's almost as if Paul, um, again, here's another objection, like, man, the promises to, to Abraham and Genesis 12 were pretty spectacular. Like, bless all the nations of the earth, uh, you, know, as many, uh, you know, as many descendants as the stars in the sky. And there's almost this, like, this is the fulfillment of the promise. Like, a small remnant here and there, a little Christian Jewish enclave, maybe Drake, you know, maybe Larry David or whatever. Like, we'd love to see these things happen. But, but a small amount of people, right, Nikki Gumbel, whatever. I thought Israel as a whole was going to respond to God. What's going on with that? Also, like, 
are the Gentiles like the backup plan, right? Are they like the, you know, the guy you asked to the dance, the guy you might ask to the dance if the first guy doesn't say yes? Like, I really wanted Israel, but I'll take these Gentiles. And so um, to deal with that question, Paul is going to dive into, like, there's been this remnant this whole time, but the remnant will get much bigger in the future. Um, So jump to, yeah, verse 11. He said, I asked them, have they stumbled so as to fail? So it's kind of a second question. It's very similar to the first question. Like, has God rejected Israel? And he's like, has Israel gone too far to be brought back, essentially? And he says this, again, absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgressions bring riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them, for if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, if the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So uh, super clear there, right? I don't need to explain that. You guys are good to move on, right? Real clear, straightforward teaching. That was a joke, you guys. Relax. I need a drink of water. <laughs> Paul now is going to explain Israel's response to the gospel, what's going to look like over thousands of years. And a lot of, sco- a lot of scholars break down Israel's turning to Jesus. They break it down into a three-stage process. Um, all right, so, uh, since Jesus came. All right, so in the first stage, you know, right after Jesus, it says, Israel transgressed, um, but it brought salvation to the Gentiles. Now, this is wild to think about. Paul means that even though a lot of Jews believed, there was still a lot of hostility to the gospel among most of Israel when Jesus first died. Um, uh, if this had not happened, though, here's what's interesting. If this hadn't happened, the early Jewish Christians could have kind of thought to themselves, oh, man, this is kind of just for ethnic Israel, right? Um, again, they already had some racist, nationalistic kind of garbage in their past. Uh, Jesus was still dealing uh, with that, right? He's, he's still working that stuff out. So they could easily have said, hey, this is for Israel. This is for our people only, for our race, our nation, our, our, our thing. Um, one commentator points out in the book of Acts that if, if, you, if you look through the book of Acts, there's kind of this way that the gospel spread. And it went like this. It's the gospel was preached in a, a Jewish synagogue. Um, the Jewish community uh, in that synagogue kind of lost their minds. Some people were believing. Many were very upset. Um, uh, so they teach from the Old Testament and go, Jesus fulfilled this. And then some people would love that. A lot of people would hate it. As a result, uh, the whoever preached would turn to the Gentiles in town. Go, all right, all right, we've got, we've got these folks. We're going to grab some, some Gentiles real quick. And they'd find many converts there. And so at the end of that, uh, the church is multi-ethnic. It's both Jew and Gentile, which is how Gentiles ended up getting in on the gospel. That's good for us. So you're saying, because they weren't interested, the guys went out and, and, and sought out Gentiles. And so within 100 years, uh, Christianity becomes a thriving multi-ethnic movement comprised mostly of Gentiles, which is pretty interesting. Again, if everyone in the synagogue is getting saved, they could have gotten complacent. And just said, oh, this is our thing, man. This is just, we're doing what we do, you know. This is our, we have this special relationship. But instead, the family of Abraham, right, it's not just ethnic Israel, spiritual Israel is way more multi-ethnic than Abraham could have ever dreamed. I don't think, I don't think Abraham, like, saw this room in his mind when God made that promise in Genesis 12. 
But God was up to something that was even, it was just better than he could ask or imagine. And the second stage, all right, so the first stage is Israel's like, we're not into it. And then so the Gentiles got to get in on it, right? Uh, you know, Israel kind of had first dibs, so we're interested, Gentiles jumped in. The second stage is Gentile believers make ethnic Israel jealous. And that might sound weird, um, but the British theologian John Stott unpacks what jealousy means here. He says, not all envy or jealousy is tainted with selfishness because it is not always either a grudging discontent or a sinful covetousness. At base, envy is the desire to have for oneself something possessed by another. And whether envy is good or evil, so there could be good or evil envy. Whether it's, it's, it's good or evil depends on the nature of the something desired and on whether one has any right to its possession. If that something is in itself evil or if it belongs to somebody else and we have no right to it, then the envy is sinful. But if the something desired is in itself good, a blessing from God, which he means all his people to enjoy, that you covet it and to envy those who have it is not at all unworthy. This kind of desire is right in itself. And to arouse it can be a realistic motive in ministry. Now, um, I still found this idea of jealousy being confusing. And the best analogy I heard uh, explain this kind of idea, it kind of clears up what Stott's saying here, uh, is the jealousy or envy of someone who's abandoned their family. Jealousy or envy of someone who's abandoned their family, right? So imagine someone who, imagine a guy who is married to an amazing spouse. And he had amazing children. As amazing as children can be, Okay. Maybe even an amazing dog. And he definitely not an amazing cat, right? That would have been that would have made it a joke. I feel like with you laughing, it feels like I'm gonna abandon you and this is this is weird. <laughs> but I added it with the dog thing. All right. Rewind, all right. Imagine there's, there's, there's a guy and he's got an amazing wife, amazing kids, and uh, and eventually he abandons them, says, I don't wanna be a daddy anymore, I don't wanna be a husband anymore. Uh, and he goes and, and finds another lover and I'm gonna like do my own thing. And then imagine, as often as in the case in these scenarios, that that situation doesn't work out. Life goes on, 10 years go by, and he's still estranged from his original family. Now he's on his own. And imagine uh, every year on his kids' birthdays, he's reminded of the mistake he made to leave that family. And imagine on one of the birthdays, this guy decides to show up to give a gift to one of his kids. And when he gets to the house, he sees through the window, he sees a man who clearly has a great relationship with his kids. A man who is obviously married to his wife now. And, 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 and he sees this guy walking in with the cake and the candles, and this guy's kicking off the singing of happy birthday to his daughter or his son. And in that moment, he thinks to himself, that should be me. I should be singing happy birthday to my daughter. I should be teaching my girl to ride the bike she was just given. Now, be, now, to be clear, this analogy is not a perf isn't perfect, uh, but it's, it's a picture of the people of Israel, not an individual, throughout history generally, not a specific Jewish person who's done something wrong, but kind of like, man, th this should be my space, and it feels like it's their space. Uh, and again, there's been a jealousy throughout church history. Often, when Jewish people have seen Christians filled with the Holy Spirit talking to God in intimate terms, saying things like Abba, reading the Old Testament, claiming the Psalms for themselves, Jeremiah 29, 11, like a plan for you. It's like, that's for Israel. You can see how it would create like a weird, like, why are you claiming to, like, why are you claiming to, to worship the God of my ancestors? 
Uh, on my ring, uh, I have Song of Solomon in Hebrew. It says, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. I was in Israel a couple years ago. Israel's got the most intense custom, like, custom situation you've ever seen in your life. The security is ridiculous. Um, I'm not making a political statement about that. It's just arduous, all right? They asked you so many questions. Uh, I had been to Tunisia. I had been to Indonesia, uh, which are both Muslim-majority countries. And they were asking me all kinds. When you were in Tunisia, what address did you stay at? I'm like, bro, it's three years ago. It's Airbnb. It's like, who'd you stay with? What's the, you know, I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, what's the, he's like, what, you got Hebrew? And I was like, yeah. He's like, you speak Hebrew? And I was like, ah, kind of. He's like, what do you mean kind of? When did you learn to speak? I'm like, well, I don't speak it, but I know a lot of words. He's like, how do you know a lot of words? I was like, well, I'm a Christian pastor. He said, what does it have to do with you? You're not Jewish. And so you can see that, that same idea. It's like, hey, this isn't your thing. This is our thing. Keller's commentary here, he says this. He says, here then is a remarkable insight just as the Gentiles could only have heard because Israel largely rejected Christ, now the Jews can only believe because those who accepted Christ were largely Gentiles. In other words, the Jews will see many Old Testament prophecies, uh, promises fulfilled in the Gentiles and believe. All right? So that's the second stage is kind of this jealousy thing. And then the last stage is that sometime in the future something's going to happen. So in the second stage, the, the envy of Israel only wins some, but Paul envisions a time... Um, where a ton of people get saved. And to see that, we're going to jump down to verse 25. Right? If you guys have uh, Bibles, verse 25. Romans eleven twenty-five. By the way, verses 17 through 25 uh, are ridiculously hard to interpret, but I promise I'm not uh, dodging them. We're going to do a whole sermon on them next week. Okay, It's why there's two. Then we'll be done with Romans 11. Okay? Uh, just for flow of the argument, though, um, I think it's a lot simpler to, to jump to verse 25. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not become conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Again, quoting the Old Testament. Verse 28, regarding the gospel... They are enemies for your advantage, but regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs. It's an important phrase. Verse 29, since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable, as you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also may now receive mercy. Um. So, so kind of like after this like Gentile movement is over, um, there'll be a time, Paul says, when, when it'll be like all Israel gets saved. And by saying all Israel, he doesn't mean every single Jewish person alive becomes a follower of Jesus. Just that there will be, to- will be a time where there will be such a massive movement of Jewish people getting saved that it will feel like the nation was saved. And this ethnic conversion, Paul says in verse 12, it'll lead to like a worldwide just blow up movement of the gospel. Paul's like, uh, listen, God has promised that Israel will be a blessing to the nations, and they have been. Even their rejection of Christ gave the Gentiles an opportunity to know God. And so if their rejection of God blessed the Gentiles, imagine when they embrace Jesus, what that will do. Uh, by the way, Paul doesn't go into a lot of, where it can get real weird with these passages. It's a tough passage already. Where it can get real weird when you blend this with Revelation, and you're like, I know how it's going to go down. Right? That's why you get a lot of weird Christian teaching on the nation state of Israel. Um, uh, you're like, you're trying to figure it out. Uh, God, he doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us. Jesus is like, I don't know the day or the hour. We're like, we know the day and the hour. <laughs> okay? 
That's not the point of this. It's just he will accomplish this one day. And so it says, even though throughout the scriptures, Israel's largely rejected God, they are still loved because of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. They are loved because of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So to sum this up, has God failed to keep his promise to Israel to make it a blessing to the nations? He hasn't at all. Many Jewish people have been saved, and even their rejection has led to Gentile salvation. But the best is yet to come. And Paul gets pumped about this. He's like, you couldn't have seen where this would go. And he just jumps into worship. Verse 33, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? God doesn't owe anyone anything. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He's like, the way he pulled off salvation, no one saw it coming. It was as unexpected as it gets. And yes, he keeps his promises. He's working things out with Israel. Um, Some people ask, uh, do we believe that the church has replaced Israel? Uh, I'm going to say yes and no to that. And here's what I mean. God has always had one people through faith. There is covenant people. So even ethnic Israel, it was the people who, who by faith trusted in him, not all of ethnic Israel. That being said, um, uh, his people, m- many Jews will, will join his people, okay, uh, the, the spiritual Israel. And so there's one people. So, so again, it's a yes and a no, but the only way into his family is through Jesus. That's, that's one thing we would want to say really, really clearly. Uh, there's like some gnarly like dispensational teaching. There's like two ways to salvation. It's like the Jewish way and the Christian way. And it seems clear as day here. Paul didn't believe that. You read Romans 9 to 11. He didn't believe that. So he was like, I would go to hell that they might be saved. And that's what he says in Romans 9. So he didn't think there was like this, these, these two plans. The, the plans kind of dovetail into one. All right. Now, what does this mean for us? Like, what does this mean for us? I don't know. Does anyone have an application? Because I, I, I can't think of any, right? Um, just kidding. I actually did think of some. And it's our outline. Number, point number one, God keeps his promises, all right? That's, that's all I'm going to say about that. He keeps his promises. The text demonstrated that clearly. Number two, if we think he hasn't kept his promises, it's likely because a couple different reasons, all right? Uh, the first one is this. We assume he promised us something he never promised to us. We assume he promised something to us he never promised to us. Many people walk away from faith in Jesus because they think he hasn't come through on his promises. And the bummer about that to me is he never promised that stuff. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen, uh, I mean, it literally, it's, 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 it's designed to make Christians look dumb and stupid um, and mean. Um, but there's that uh, Pray Away documentary on, on Netflix about conversion therapy, which is the idea that you could make someone change their sexual orientation. Something the Bible doesn't teach explicitly at all. And that, by the way... <laughs> There's a million amazing people they could have interviewed who are gay and lesbian and who are following Jesus and are saying changing orientation is not the point. That's not in the Bible. Um, but basically what the organization did that's profiled in the documentary, by the way, who, they're all the ones who are bashing it now. It's like it was your guys' organization. But they were promising uh, a change in orientation. And, uh, and so you can imagine for people who want to follow, they're like, man, I, I don't want this to be true of me. I think the Bible says this isn't good for me. And so I want to change not just the behavior but my orientation and you're told for years you can and you can't. You go, God doesn't love me. And the bummer is, is the scriptures never promise that. 
oftentimes, um, another one, I mean, this is kind of, you know, in third world countries, there's the health wealth gospel. Uh, my, my friend, you guys know Grant Clark, my friend, uh, in South Africa, he says, uh, in America, we have this thing, it's kind of like the neo-health wealth, and uh, it's kind of like new school health wealth, and he's like, it's like um, a guy who wears, like, really cool clothes and has a beautiful wife, and he gets a private jet or whatever, and he, right, like, like he, it's not as uh, embarrassing as, like, Benny Hinn or Joel Osteen with, like, gold globes on stage and stuff, um, but it's like, you'll, you'll, you'll be cool, you'll be healthy. You'll eat organic, you'll shop at Target, you'll die wealthy, or something like that. And, and, and oftentimes, um, people are in churches with a message that's proclaimed is, if you trust Jesus and start following him, everything in your life will get easy. That's the message. And, 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 right, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, marry the spouse of your dreams, ride into heaven on a unicorn, and when things get hard... Because following Jesus isn't easy, those people bail on Jesus, and they're mad at him for doing something that they never said. Again, doing the, the, doing the theological deconstruction class, so much of what you see is like bad teaching, that they're like, you know, F this, for, F isn't forget this. I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. Let me see, all right. And, and it's like, oh, man, like the teaching you're rejecting, I would reject, Jesus would reject for example, I'll give you an example. Um, the evangelical church in America is embarrassingly allergic to persecution. Uh, Bianca's nodding her head. Her family came from Romania where they were under a communist regime actually persecuted. Um, but in America, we expect to be respected. We, we expect to have power, right? Why isn't that Netflix documentary fairly representing us? Why isn't the government doing what, what the scriptures say? How could you make me have church outside in masks? I thought if I became a follower of Jesus, I'd be popular and well-respected. It's like, no. <laughs> I was watching an interview of a, of a Christian in Iran, and uh, he said, man, we, we don't put our hope in politics. A friend of mine in Northern Ireland, they haven't had a working government in like 10 years or something. Uh, he said, we, we don't put our hope in politics. We know it's going to be hard. This idea that we would live in a persecution-free life where the church has all the power is not promised to you by the scriptures. Boycotting Disneyland, <laughs> so they're not pro-Christian enough. Peter, Paul, and Jesus all promise persecution for those who faithfully follow Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 to 14 says, Dear friends, do, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you. We're, we're like all surprised though. We're like, whoa, persecution. People don't think Christians are nice anymore. They think they're wicked. Like walk, walk around, check out Instagram. We're not like the naive nice guys. We're the bad guys. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share and the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. In fact, all, all in Greek, guys, you're not going to believe this. It means all. Who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. John 15, 
Verses 18 to 21 says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. This is Jesus speaking. However, because you are not of the world, because I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. If you believe Jesus is the only way to God, you will be called a bigot in our society today. Though Jesus himself says it over and over and over again. No wonder they mock you for having a sexual ethic that's more than consenting adults. No wonder they mock you for forgiving or proposing that we should love our enemies. Some of you will be turned down for job promotions for following Jesus. Some of you will be slandered by family or friends. That's promised to us. Following Jesus is so hard, but hear me, it's so worth it. If you know him for real, playing church is not worth it. Like not loving Jesus but being persecuted, forget it. Most miserable person in the world. Man, if you know him for real, you're going to be okay. Because we're given other promises. We're given promises that one day Jesus will make all things new. We're given other promises that while we are persecuted for Jesus, that he will be with us. Philippians 3 says that we experience something of him, fellowship with him, intimate fellowship. It's the deepest of relationships, the word in Greek there. We'll experience that as we're persecuted for his name. By the way, not being persecuted for being a jerk on Facebook or being ridiculous. But like, I follow Jesus, so I do the stuff he says to do, and sometimes I get in trouble for it. And it doesn't have to make sense to you. We're given the promise he's going to be with us. John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus didn't promise you that he would make you wealthy or give you your dream job or your dream spouse. Jesus promised to give you himself. And friends, that is enough. He promised to give you a security and an identity and an inheritance that cannot be shaken an eternity with him, a new father who adores you, a new spirit who's transforming you. And if you really believe that stuff deeply, it changes what you're able to face, as hard as it might be. So if you think God hasn't fulfilled his promises, you might be thinking he, you might assume that he made a promise to you he never actually made, like there's no suffering or life is easy for a Christian. Uh, The second thing that might be going on is, is the promise is still in process of being fulfilled, the process is still in process of being fulfilled. Uh, we see this with the salvation of, of many Jewish people in Romans 11. I just read it. We also see this with Jesus one day making all things new, ending injustice and sin and disease. No more racism, no more abortion, no more death, no more lies, no more war, no more poverty. We also see this in the journey of our own sanctification and restoration, don't we? It's a promise made, but it's being worked out over time. And so the promise might still be in the process of being fulfilled. And last but not least, he might be fulfilling the promise in a way you never saw coming. Like there's some stuff you can see coming, right? 
but man, there's some other stuff that just throws you for a loop in the best way. Like, I never thought this would be how this thing would come to pass. We saw this with God's original promise to Sarah and Abraham. He's like, you guys want to have a baby? He's like, bro, I'm 100. He's like, cool. We saw this in, in Romans 11 with, with, with Gentiles fulfilling much of that promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, even though they're not ethnically related. And we see all throughout the gospel story. We see this with a, with a king who's born in a manger to a virgin teen mother who then becomes a refugee escaping assassination in his nation. We, we see this with a Messiah who, who conquers by dying. And we see, we see a Messiah who rises from the dead. God is always doing things differently than we think he would do. That's because he's God. You're not. So he may be working this thing out in a way that you never saw coming. And so what I want to do right now is um, we do know that Jesus did fulfill everything the Old Testament said he would fulfill. And one of the things that he became was the true Passover lamb. And so what I want to do right now is take communion together. I want to call Carlo and and Nicole up to to close us out in worship. Jesus takes this Passover meal. He takes this this, this bread and he takes this wine, something that they would have um, been very used to over the years at Passover, this Passover meal. Something that would have symbolized, it had great um, symbolic meaning and value to them as God's people, as Israel. That they remembered the Exodus. They remembered the Passover. And Jesus steps into that. I want you to see how crazy this would have sounded to them. Something that's been done for thousands of years. And he says, this whole thing has always been about me. It pointed to me. It was an elaborate way to prepare you for me. And now I'm here. And so when you take this meal, do this in remembrance of me. I'm the lamb whose bones are going to be broken. I'm the lamb whose blood's going to be shed. I'm the perfect lamb. I'm the perfect sacrifice. And I'm going to fulfill it. And then that's what he goes and does. He goes and dies on the cross, dies the death that you and I deserve to die. And he gives it all for us. And then he says, it is finished. And by saying it is finished, he creates a way for us to be with God, for us to be brought near by the blood of Jesus, like Ephesians says. That we were who we who are once enemies have been brought near because Jesus fulfilled the promise God gave. And so right now, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're here, I want to encourage you to take communion and thank Jesus for doing what he did for you, for fulfilling the prophecy. The, fulfilling the prophecy to be the Passover land we needed, fulfilling the promise to be the sacrifice we needed. So I'm gonna go ahead and pray, and I would encourage you to, to, to pop up. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you not to take communion. Uh, it's, 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 it's celebrating the fact that Jesus has done this for us. Um, however, if, if you um, are a follower of Jesus and you're not a member, that's fine, you can come up and take communion. Also, if you're not a follower of Jesus, but you wanna become a follower of Jesus, you can do that today and then take your first communion. So, um, so, so uh, it might seem exclusive, but you can, you can put your faith in Jesus today um, and be included in this family that God's been building throughout history. So Jesus, thank you for, for loving us. Thank you for laying down your life for us. And this was a really hard text to teach and it felt confusing at times. But what I do know is that it, it, it's, it has this overwhelming smell of your faithfulness. 
there's this clear reality in it that you fulfill your promises in ways that are, are better than we could ask or imagine. And so, Lord, I thank you that you decided to include Gentiles. I thank you that you decided to include sinners. Thank you that you decided to include the poor, the afraid, the hurting, the angry, the addicted. You go, ah, oh, my family, my family. Thank you, thank you, thank you.